I've got a gift of finding guilty faces. Because um, I give whoever it was that rolled my yard a B. Because if you're going to properly do it, you got to give a little slack. Because this is the section that's smiling the most. And then you got to lob it like that. But uh, this isn't Charmin, so I'm not going to use it in my house. You know what I found over, you know what I found out over COVID? Charmin stops up toilets bad. So we changed to White Cloud. It doesn't throw as easy though as, what is this? I think that we use this as sandpaper. Anyway, man, what an incredible weekend. You know what? Thank you. I found it kind of honoring that my house looked like Christmas this morning. Well, last night when we got home, but I mean... You know what? These kids had some fun. There were 50 volunteers that made this weekend happen. But there are two very special people, Crosby Harden and Aaron Terrell. And I want us to give them the biggest hoop holler that we can give them. No, stand up. Give them, give them some accolade. Thank you so much. Come on. Erin stood up and clapped for herself. You know, I was thinking as we were singing that last song and we were in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, the interlude there part where it says, come on, my soul, don't get shy on me. I kind of felt like we were at the Grand Canyon and we were standing about 30 feet from the edge of it. Church, can I coach you for a moment? When we're in a moment of worship like that and God's starting to move, if you don't want to get up to the edge, you ain't going to be able to see what God can do. I'm telling you guys, it was a powerful weekend, and I think some of these students can testify to that. We don't know how many decisions that there were made for sure because time will tell. But there were at least ten hands that were raised for salvation, and God's people said what? There were 12 hands that went up last night when Clayton King said, how many of you feel like you're being called specifically into ministry? 12, 12 hands, and people said, it's incredible. Because here, here's the thing, I hear, I hear Fred tell me stories about his tenure here as pastor. I heard Andy tell me stories about his tenure here as pastor. When 12 people raise their hand to ministry, we're going to be able to see the fruit of that in about 10, 20 years. I want to see more hands. Because you know what? Truth is, every one of you have been called to something. The beautiful thing about ministry leadership is watching you find out what it is God's called you to do. Stepping into what it is that God's called you to do. That's the incredible thing about weekends like this. Because we, we found out what it meant to just kind of hit pause. To value spending time with the Lord. Spending time together. We... Our students in their small group talked about prayer and talking with God and the priority of reading Scripture. But I love what Jacob said on Friday night when he looked at our students and he said, you've got a choice to make, and by not making a choice about Jesus, you're making a choice. And his dad last night, Clayton, capped it off by saying, Jesus needs you to build a foundation 
upon which to build. And he emphasized how in this day and time, too many of our foundation is just sinking sand. Students, did I tell a pretty good synopsis of the weekend? That's what they heard. But now the challenge is to take what we have heard and put it into practice. So I want to invite you to turn to Titus chapter 2. And while I'm doing that, I want to re-emphasize what Crosby shared with you about two Wednesday nights from now. We're not having services here. October 4th, we're not going to have services here. No kids, no students, no adults, because we're going fishing. In fact, I think just, just to be as silly as we can, I'm going to get Caleb to put signs on our door that says, Gone Fishing. Because some of you in this room would be like, you know what, I don't want to go to a student event because they're going to play music that I don't like. You showing up for that event shows this community that we love them. It builds our integrity as a place of ministry. And just like Jacob said, we make a choice by not making a choice. Church, I'm inviting you, I'm begging you to show up in two Wednesday nights at Stevens County High School. Tallulah Falls is having it the same night. Two schools that feed into our church that are vitally important to show up and support our students to tell our community that we love them. And it's vital. It's vitally important because even today, what we're going to talk about today is rhythms. Rhythms in our life. Rhythms and commitments that we make so that we can model to other people the faith life that we claim. And how important is it? Well, glad you asked that question. Recently, I discovered an article that came out of the University of Georgia. Go dogs, right? There's more things that come out of UGA than football. But this specific study was done by Bill Stanford. Can you get any more Georgia than the last name Stanford? Bill Stanford wrote this article, wrote and researched this article. And what they found shouldn't shock you because it's a lot of things that we believe. They found that the way that parents lived faith life in front of their children and the kinds of conversations they have with their kids about faith affects their spiritual growth. That should be, a, that should be shouldn't be rocket science, right? They also found that participation by kids in Sunday school and youth group, not just church, not just worship, affected a youth's feeling of belonging. I'm, I'm going to let that one simmer. You know how you, when you're cooking something, you, you warm it up, then you got to set it on the back eye? The way parents talk to their kids about faith, way, that's a qualitative measurement, the way that they talk to their kids about faith and their involvement in church matters, right? That's not the point of the study. Because we've lived a long time thinking that, well, you know what, my kid, they may go through that wild phase and they may slip out of church, but they'll come back, right? It's not happening anymore. About three out of ten Americans currently identify as non-religious, and that number is growing. 
For parents who are invested in religious tradition and religious community leaders, this should be concerning. Listen to what the article said. It used to be a truism that people stopped attending religious services in college and then came back when they had kids. But more recent studies are showing that people aren't coming back. So they ask why. And do you want to know why? Get ready. One, everybody hold up the number one. One out of six kids from religious homes said their parents talked to them about spiritual things. Now put up the other five. Five out of six said they did not. It does more damage to a kid to drag them to a church service and leave. Wait a minute, I don't think y'all know what I'm talking about. It does more damage to a kid's faith if as a parent you drop your kids and leave the church. If they don't see you, parents and grandparents, in Bible study, carrying your Bible, singing songs in worship, that hypocrisy affects the way that they live. In fact, wherever you take and drive the stake of your moral boundary, whatever the issues are, your kids will go just a little bit past it. That's why when you study the Old Testament and they would do the, 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 the festivals and they would do Passover, each year it got a little bit worse. And generation after generation, it was a slow fade until they completely fell away from God and began to worship Baal and other stuff. Wherever you mark, wherever that mark is, your kids will come up to that mark and they will test it. And the reason that we're failing is because we're not modeling the faith we claim in our home. And I believe that this passage lays out three areas of our life. I don't know why I like the number three. I think because that keeps me within about 30 minutes. I'm going to start breaking it up. I'm going to come in next week with five. How's that sound? Deal? But three things, because these three things are things that we engage with every day. We engage with our head, what we know. We engage with our volition, our heart. And we engage with our hands. Living in our homes, we need to establish rhythms in our families, rhythms with our friends, rhythms, rhythms with our grandkids, whatever, we're coworkers. We establish rhythms that communicates and tells our faith story or negates our faith story. So I'm challenging you today, all of us. Last week I asked you to write down your story. I hoped this week I was going to get flooded with emails with people saying, hey, here's my story. You know how many emails I got this week? I got zero. Now, I don't want y'all to feel bad. I'm not shaming you. But as a, as a pastor who, who, who is you know, spending time studying and preparing for a message and going, you know what? Here's a good application. I'll challenge our people to write their stories down. It doesn't hurt my feelings. It worries me. It worries me that we don't know our stories. 
I want you to know your story. I want you to live your story because I believe we're standing at the precipice of the Grand Canyon to see God do some glorious things. But we've got to be in it together. So buckle up. Let's go ahead and stand and let me read this passage or I'll preach for 50 minutes today. And all of God's people said, heck no. Notice I Christian cussed there. I didn't say the other word. Starting in verse number one, it says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, or or sober. Pay, Pay attention to that word. Sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, there it is again, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not or may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. And you can draw kind of a a vertical line there because he's going to shift back to talking directly to Titus. He says to Titus, in all things show, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing to say bad about us. Father, as we dig into your word this morning, as we celebrate what these students experienced this weekend, I pray you call us to holy living. That you show us, Lord, how with joy we can live the life of faith and that joy, that commitment be contagious. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to take a moment just to kind of observe that he's giving a series of imperatives to Titus and what he is about to instruct his congregants to consider. In chapter 1, there's a little bit of a contrast going on. I mean, basically, Titus just says that the Cretans, the island, the people that live on the Isle of Crete, were basically scumbags. They were evil, malicious. They were, I mean, it was like, it was, if you want to think debauchery, think debauch. This was a terrible area. Now, at this point, it's about 64. Let's, let's just say about 64 A.D. How old's the church by this point? 30 years, maybe, give or take. But that would be the, the, the oldest it could be. The, the church in Greek, I would probably propose, would only be about 15 to 20 years old. Maybe. And he's writing to Titus and he said, I want you to go into each and every town. So there was more than one gathering. And I want you to establish elders. And when you read the qualification for these elders, this stands in contrast to the Cretans and how despicable they were. I mean, it, it's really bad. Look at verse number 12. Where he says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil uh, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Then in verse 16, he says, about some of these men, they profess to know God. But by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. How would you like that to be your descriptor? Couldn't you see like travel signs and come to, Greece, uh, come to Crete where we are detestable, disobedient, and worthless? 
I'm sure you'd be signing up for a cruise right now. No, there's places you don't vacation because they have that reputation. And that's what was going on here. Paul is calling them and saying, look, I need you to pause for a moment and evaluate what's going on in your lives. So I need you to talk to the older men and older women, which I believe in this context are post kids are out of the house, are parents of adults. And then the younger men and the younger women would be those that are, have kids or are about to have kids. Do you see the, the, the difference there? Because honestly, they're not really old enough as a church to say you've got some, some men in this church that have been in the faith 50 or 60 years. Very unlikely. So he's dealing with a cultural issue here, asking these people about the rhythms in their lives. And the first one comes from the first verse. It addresses the head. Share what you know. He says, but as for you, speak, it's imperative, present tense, the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, sound teaching is vital for the church and the local body. I remember a guy saying one time, hey, listen, as a church, we just, we just major on, on the major things. We don't, we don't get into the, to the minor issues. Guys, minor issues matter too. For example, I bet if we sat down and you and I talked eschatology, you don't know what eschatology is? Joe knows what eschatology is. Joe, this week you and I are going to have a text stream about eschatology. Look at that, man. He's smiling from ear to ear right now. You and I may disagree with exactly the particulars about how end time comes. And we may say, well, we both agree Jesus is going to come back soon. He's going to come back at any moment. We agree on that, right? But what I believe about it, number one, I'm trying to be true to the scripture in its context, both grammatically and historically, and it ought to move and motivate me to be about the Lord's work now, not waiting to that moment. A proper view of eschatology should drive my belief in the gospel, my extension of the gospel, and my influence of other people, should it not? So those issues matter. I can say, you know what, boy, I love, I love worship. I love come and sing. And we believe worship is scriptural, right? Sing hymns to one another, encourage one another. Jesus, I can't do that forgiveness stuff. I'm sorry, I'll do that all you want to, but, but don't ask me to forgive my mama. Don't ask me to forgive my coworker. I can't do that one. I can do this one. I can sing all day long. Oh, Jesus. But I ain't forgiving no one. Sound doctrine provides security. Y'all get that? So what I know matters. We believe in this church that we need to own our faith. And one of the stones of owning our faith is seeking to know, to grow, to learn. All of us learn differently, right? Some of you learn with your hands, some with your head, some of you... You've got to talk it out loud. I've got a few of those people in my life. They can't learn unless they can talk. Whatever you need to do to learn, learn. Last night, Clayton King uh, challenged our students. He said, you want to do something different in your life? Starting tomorrow at church, bring your Bible and bring a notepad. 
Well, they hadn't had time to go to Dollar Tree yet. They will, though. No, I mean, every Sunday, he said, and when you're sitting there, you want to learn something? Yeah, you can take a device, and you can turn it on, and you can, you know, you could touch and touch and scroll. He said, but it's proven, and it is by, by research, that you learn more when you can handle the book. Yes, I love digital. Digital makes things so much nicer. I can right-click on words in my Bible, and it gives me the Greek, and I love that. But I re- absorb it more when I can touch it, when I can smell. Y'all don't smell your Bibles? There's nothing better than to smell a new Bible. It's so wonderful. But when I touch it, I see it, I write it, I, I handle it, it's going to stick more. And when I can hide his word in my heart, I have a better chance of not sinning against my God. You need to share what you know. Your, your kids, your grandkids, that's why I challenged you last week to write down your story. Your kids need to know your story. Your kids need to know what you believe. And when you say, I believe this, but your actions do this, it's telling them a different story. Jesus, in the last verse of Matthew, said, teaching them to obey All that I have commanded you, sound doctrine is vital. Jeffrey Bromley said there's three things, three pillars upon which the doctrine of the apostles rested. Jesus was the Christ, Jesus rose from the dead, and that salvation is by his name alone. We get those three things built into our foundation, speaking what we know. In fact, when you, when you go back and you look, he says, they, in that last verse of chapter 1, they profess to know God, but they deny him in their deeds. I know I've quoted it before. Let me do it again. DC Talk. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. We need to be sure about what we believe, that Jesus was, Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and in him is the only way I can have forgiveness for my sins. Amen? I have to be sure of what this gospel says. Trusting it, believing it, for it to have an impact in my life. I like what Jacob Abshire said. He said, sound doctrine must be taught, trained, heard, observed, repeated, discussed, written, recited, defended. Why? Listen to this. Sound doctrine produces godly living that demonstrates gospel power. That's why Moses was writing in Deuteronomy 7, after the great Shema, he said, you shall diligently teach these to your children. That, that Hebrew word has strength of repetition. Teach it how how you do that. You do it when you rise up, when you lay down, when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way. That encompasses every aspect of your life. Parents, grandparents, we need to model this all the time. And if we don't commit to modeling those things, we're going to raise up an apostate generation. We're already seeing the fruits thereof. If the knowledge of God becomes optional and inconvenient, uncomfortable, don't be surprised when your children, your grandchildren grow up and leave the church. It starts with you. 
If your own practice of these things becomes secondary, you actually do more harm than help because they see the hypocrisy in your life. You can bring them to every church activity that we offer. But if you, the parent, do not proactively, intentionally, joyfully talk about faith in your home, it will not stick. That's why it's important for you to take what's in your head and let it move to your heart. Your heart is where you share your experience. Remember when when COVID happened, April 2020, we all shut down. And one of the things our church did was we sat down with the list of anyone that was 65 and over. We divided that up and we started calling everyone that was shut in to say, hey, listen, are you okay? Can we bring you anything? You know, we didn't want them getting out. I mean, we wanted to, we wanted to shepherd them, right? We wanted to take care of them. Well, one of the ladies that was on my list actually lived up the street from us. Her name was Miss Wanda. And when I called to check on her, I said, hey, how you doing? She's like, I'm good. You need anything? Can we bring you something? She's like, no, I'm fine. So one day I'm sitting on my porch and our, our driveway was, was pretty long, probably about from here to, to the outside doors. We had, a good, we had a nice driveway. I'm sitting there and I see this car pull up randomly. I mean, going like, wait, we're shut down and there's a car pulling up in my driveway. And it was Miss Wanda. And Miss Wanda got out of her car carrying a Walmart bag of food. She wanted to come take care of us. But what Miss Wanda didn't know was that the cancer she had was growing in her abdomen. About a month later, Miss Wanda ended up in the hospital. And my kids, I mean, got to meet Miss Wanda. And so her daughter called me. She had gotten bedridden by this point. And she said, Listen, I don't know if you do this. She said, but would you mind coming and serving my mom communion one last time? We hadn't regathered as a church, and she wanted, that was something very special to her in the Christian environment she grew up in was the taking of the Lord's Supper. And so I don't remember, I think I went and got saltine crackers and Welch's grape juice. And I told my family, I said, guys, we're going to go up and we're going to serve Miss Wanda communion. And we all went. My kids went with me. We took my guitar. We sang some hymns to her. Weak. She was able enough to take that cracker and drink that juice. And lift her hands as we sang Amazing Grace. And it was beautiful. But you know what was even more beautiful than that? Was that my three kids was in the room with us. As a pastor, I could have just gone and done it myself, right? But my kids got to experience it. And I believe it changed their life. Carrie Newhoff and Reggie Joyner said this, when it comes to your character and your faith, your kids are watching you in a way that you might not want them to do. Because it's so personal. That's, that's why they're watching you. Because they love you. They're connected to you. And those of you in this room that may not have kids or grandkids, they're watching you too. They're meeting you in the hallway out here in church and they're coming down the aisle after we come in here to sit down. They're engaged with you. Don't ever doubt it. Adopt us. Hey, if you, if you need some kids and grandkids to love on, I'm signing up. Number one, right here, come love on me. Love on my kids. You know, because I'm going to tell you, in our old church, when Laura lost her mom, there were people that came around and started loving on my kids because they lost their grandma. 
Folks, we need each other. Come on, I could take and tra- chase 10 rabbit, tra- tra- rabbit trails right now just on that one thing. We need each other, and we need to share those experiences. You can go back and read this text later because it's talking about the old men and the young men and the older women and how they're influencing each other. But the one thing that was common in all three of those descriptions was the word sensible. The way that I live affects the way that other people perceive me, interact with me, and grow as a result. The word sensible in some older translations is translated sober. I think that's why in there he had to look at the old women and say, Women, y'all need to stop drinking and gossiping. And oh, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to. No, but I will say this. And I'm going to go ahead and preface it by saying I am about to offend you. I said a little while ago, wherever you put your stake in the ground, your kids will go just a little bit past it. There's a lot of practices that we do that our kids then pass us and go, how did that happen? Well, if you're loose on your your, uh, convictions about drinking, keeping alcohol in your home, don't be shot when your kids are drinking. I'm just going to let that one sit. I held the head of my relative. I'm going to leave him nameless as he was vomiting, coming off of drugs and alcohol. We don't need it. You and I can debate this. I, I'll promise you, if you want to come down here and debate this with me after church, I promise you I'll stand there and listen to you. Nothing good has ever come from alcohol. Nothing good. You, you, I'm telling you, you come up here and you convince me other than medicinal purposes and, and NyQuil, anything good that's come from alcohol. I've lost loved ones to alcohol. I have a very close relative who is a drug addict because of substance abuse. And you know why? Because we get to this place and we decide, all right, This is my moral boundary. My kids are always going to go a little bit past it. They're going to test that boundary. And if my boundary is loose, if I'm up here kind of being like a flag girl at the football game, moving my flag around, and they're going, oh, it's here today, and here it's here today. i got to be firm and sound teaching and convictions if I want to set the security up for my kids to grow up with any chance of having faith. And drinking is just one example. If I started smoking as a kid, it's because I had family that smoked and there was nothing they could say about it because they did it too. If I'm driving down the road messing with my phone, parents, listen to me. If I'm messing with my phone and I stand guilty, if my kid dies in a car wreck messing with her phone, I'm to blame because they saw it in my life. Are y'all with me? Because I mean, I either just emptied the air out of the room or I smell bad. I don't know which one it is. But guys, I'm serious about it. We've got to be sure about what moral boundaries we hold. In fact, I, I asked Crosby and I just, I just forgot to do it. I wanted to bring a playpen out here and put it on the, on the stage. You know why you have a playpen in your house when you have babies? Because babies can't walk well. Babies wander off. Babies get into stuff that they don't know what they're getting into. And you and I have got to see that God's moral boundary for us is because we don't know how to walk. And we stumble and we fall and we hit our head. 
He's raising us and growing us up in our faith. And we've got to do the same in our homes. We've got to nurture. And I know some of you are sitting there going, and your kids, and you're sitting there going, well, you don't know my parents, do you? I don't know your parents. For all of you in the room, I don't know how you grew up. I, I knew what I grew up in. But you know where that is? It's behind me. My past is behind me. I'm a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. I can't blame my present behavior on the past anymore when God has brought the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and invited me into a relationship with him. All I'm concerned about is the future. And you know what my future has? My future has the resurrection in it. There's nothing that can hold my life down. I have, been, I have been forgiven of my sins. Satan can't hold anything over me. I live in the freedom of the gospel. Jesus promised me that if I leave this world in death, I will be raised again someday. Y'all just missed it. That's the gospel. That's the good news that I'm no longer bound by the death that sin brought into my life. Maybe one of these days the church is going to really get mad at sin and start living like we hate it. And we do that when we set up rhythms in our home, when we share what we know, when we share what we experience. And be serious about understanding that there's so many eyes that are watching us around us. Because our children, they're looking, they're watching, they're mimicking us. How special, I'm going to pick on Josiah for a minute. Because his baby started crying a little while ago and he's back here at the keyboard. And the most beautiful smile came across his face. He saw that baby crying. And that baby's going to grow up, and he, she, she's going to put on mama's shoes. The other day I came in, and, and even though Micah thinks he's my size, he's not yet. And I took this coat off, and he put it on, and he could take it and wrap it around him like twice. But I looked at my son becoming a man, and I can't be prouder. But you know who he's mimicking? He's mimicking my good. He's mimicking my bad. And what I want to be able to teach him to do is to go, you know what? Jesus doesn't want the bad things, and he died to forgive me of those things. Now let me live in that forgiveness. Let's live in homes that is full of grace, that gives people the permission that when I screw up, I can come back and have a relationship with them. Let's stop practicing emotional cutoff to try to get people to, to, to do what we want them to do. Let's live in the grace of God that motivates and moves us to live a life that is found only in Jesus Christ. Because the third one here is we need to share what we do together. Share what we do together. Again, in the text at verse 7, he shifts back to Timothy and he says, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Say good deeds. One more time. Say it loud. Good deeds. I mean, everybody can go hold the door open for somebody, but when I do it with Christian motivation, it's different. He says with purity of doctrine, he's, he's driving this home. You need to know what good teaching is, it needs to be sound and it needs to be pure. Do you see that development over eight verses? Know what you need to know and be sure of what you know and stand in what you know. Clayton King told the kids last night, you need to be so sure you know about certain cultural issues that you're not ashamed to be able to defend what you believe. Whether it deals with homosexuality, transgenderism, whether it deals with alcohol, premarital sex, whether it deals with how we treat people or how I'm reading, whatever the issue is, find that place to stand in and stand in that grace, 
staying in that place firmly but with grace. We need to be a model. We need to replicate good deeds. 2 Timothy 2.2 2. What you've heard of me, instill it in other people, in other men who are able to do the same. Listen to this. This is kind of a summary statement. The young men would provide a good example by maintaining purity in the teaching of God's truth as teachers or practitioners by being dignified. That word literally gives this impression of weight. And I used the example in, in, a, in a previous uh, message where if you, you've ever seen a, a highly decorated military person, they walk in the room, you hear those medals clang. It's almost like the jacket should look like this. There's so many medals on it. And they just carry themselves with dignity. What would your life look like if you walked in your Christian faith with dignity? Robes of white that Jesus gave to you, bought by and purchased and washed in his blood. He said obedience to these particulars would rob the enemies of the church any reasonable grounds for criticism. That's why he's saying to do these things. It goes back to what I said earlier. We go to events and we do different things because we need to maintain good character and good rapport with our community because if we don't, it discredits the preaching of the gospel. Your action should create doubt that you're living in the old life. We must be people full of trust, integrity, good reputation, dependable, friendly, helpful, full of the Spirit, wise, faithful, committed, passionate, and humble. Because all of us in this room, we can think of somebody that came alongside of us, a teacher, a coach, somebody who put their arm around us and they shared with us what they knew. They shared our, their affections with us. They shared what, what drove them, what motivated, what moved them. And then they shared with us how to do those things. I've told the story, part of the story before about my granddad. My granddad had a massive heart attack in 1986. Quadruple bypass, St. Joseph's, down there a month. This was before they got really good, I guess, at doing bypass surgery. But I was, I was almost a preteen when it happened. And, and my grandfather used us as cheap labor. Anybody witness to that? He'd whistle and we'd come down and we, he had this, this thing on top of his house. Every year we'd have to wrap it with black trash bags to keep animals from coming in. And then we'd load up those dirty, nasty batteries in the back of his truck. And, I mean, we did all kinds of things. But the one thing he wouldn't let me do at a young age is drive his 40s model Ford tractor. He just wouldn't let me drive it. My grandfather, who was one of the best mechanics around, never fixed the brakes on that tractor. I never understood it. I mean, he drove a tractor without brakes, but you had to, you had to learn how to drive it. And he wouldn't let very many people mess with it. But living right behind him, as I got older and his, his health continued to decline, I'm like, come on, Pop, let me go bush hog. You know what bush hogging is? It's glorified grass cutting. A lot bigger. And the way you had to drive this tractor is you had to pump the clutch and throw it out of gear at just the right time to stop it. Grind it till you find it and then make it stop. And I'd hang out with my pop and we would, I'd, I'd ride on the side of it. We, we did all this stuff together. And one day, he finally let me drive the tractor. And I went to bush hogging. Man, I felt so free. Here I am, 20 years old. I felt like a man. Finally got to drive that 40 model, 40s model tractor. 
as he sat on top of the hill in his wheelchair, in his electric wheelchair because he couldn't walk anymore. We did life together. I drove his battery truck with him. We did life together. In those last few years, I got to spend a lot of time with him, but you know what he did? He imparted a lot of wisdom into my life. I miss driving that tractor, but I miss my papa too. We have to capitalize on the time that we have. And when we commit to modeling our faith in front of those that God has brought into our life, whether that's our grandkids, whether that's our kids, whether that's our friends, our coworkers, our peers, that encompasses everyone in this room. But when I get serious about my faith, when I get serious about showing the world who Jesus is, it changes everything. Model faith in everything that you do. Model faith in everything that you do, in your thoughts, your aspirations, and your deeds. My question to you today would be this. How much different would life be if you spoke consistently with sound doctrine, exuded love and passion for Christ, and invited other people to come along and do it with you? To me, you know what? That's the simplicity of discipleship. Discipleship does not have to be complicated just has to be done and he's called every one of us to do that so i want to give you some challenges if you're a student in the room i don't want you to raise your hands you're not nodding you're not doing anything but how would you rate your home are you in the one out of six or the five out of six in the most respectful way you can why don't you invite your parents to start having faith conversations with you what would that look like? To go home and to say, hey, mom, you know, I, I really feel like I need you to talk to me about this on a regular basis. What would it look like? Parents, what's one rhythm you can start? I'm just, I'm just asking one. Maybe it's to, at night when you sit down at the table, you read at least two verses together. Just read them. They'll sit there. They'll sit there. What if you started reading the Bible on a regular? What if your kids caught you doing Bible study? Start rhythms in your own personal life so that it will affect the kids that are watching you. Because I think it's that serious. We need to rise up, create our own rhythm. Students, if your parents aren't in the faith, they're lost, they don't go to church, that doesn't mean that you can't do rhythms. Like Clayton said last night, if you don't have a Bible, you come see Crosby and me. We'll get you a Bible. If you don't journal, go buy a journal and start journaling, writing things down that you're hearing that's being taught to you. Process it. It doesn't have to be rocket science, but you've got to commit to it. You can't just do it when you feel like it. It's easy to leave a weekend like this, ladies and gentlemen, and be on a spiritual high, but I can guarantee you tomorrow morning, hell is going to break loose on you. And try to pull you down from everything you experienced this week. We're not asking you to stay on a spiritual high. We're asking you to set in concrete practices and rhythms that will carry your life. And for the rest of us, can I, can I challenge you today? We talk about owning our faith. But what would it look like if you owned your church? You know what I'm talking about? Own your church. 
Are there some of us in this church that are hard to get along with? And everybody said, amen. Love your church. Jesus loves the church. Let's love our church. Let's be proud of our church. Let's make our church a place that hurting people, marginalized people, lost people will want to come and check out. And it starts with us individually, corporately coming together with that vision. Because I believe God's calling us to move. 2024, our theme is move. We're going to move. Because you know what happens when you don't move? You get stagnant and you stink. I got a potted plant on my porch I have to empty out once a week because the water doesn't evaporate like the other one does. And every time I take that fern out, it stinks. Why? Because the water is stagnant. It's not doing that plant any good. Guys, we need to be on mission. Here's something, last thing I want you to think about. I want to give you two challenges. Clayton King said last night the most beautiful thing he saw in our service last night was after we did the invitation, after the hands were raised, there was about 25 students came down to this altar broken, was praying and pouring their hearts out to God. It was beautiful. Thank you, students, for being vulnerable, for not being shy. You know what I'm saying? Who poured into your life? and made a difference in your faith. When's the last time you talked to them? What if today when you got home, you wrote them a letter, gave them a call, sent them a text, and just said, you know what? You made a difference in my life. There's a friend of mine that for the last five, six years, he was an intern with us years ago at another church. Every year I've texted him, happy birthday. You know what he wrote to me yesterday? He said, man, you've never forgotten my birthday. Even though I've been all over this country, you've never forgotten my birthday. Does that matter much? I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just saying, dude, you don't know the power that a text, a note, a letter, an email might make in somebody else's life. That person that encouraged you may be sitting at home right now alone and afraid and needs to hear from somebody to encourage them. So y'all stand with us as we, as we pray. Father, I just ask that you just move. I don't know what the needs are in this room. There'll be some of us down here. If someone's lost and needs to know Jesus, God, I pray that they move. I pray, God, if somebody's drifted away from you that's trying to figure out, well, what's the rhythm I need to put in my life, that they would move. God, I pray that they'd feel the freedom of this altar and that they could come and lay their burdens down up here and that other people will come around them and pray for them, that when they leave today, God, that we'll be ready to go home and live out what we think, live out what we feel, live out what we do in a way that will model faith in front of those that we do life with. In Jesus' name, amen.